Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I think this is episode 249 of the show. Hold on. I'm doing a quick double check. Josh is going to look at me like I'm crazy because I wasn't prepared for his introduction. He's probably very frustrated. Josh, how you doing? I'm good, dude. I, I don't know what is the next monumental milestone. Though. Is it like 250, 100? 100, 100 was pretty big. big. Is 250 big? I Bigger don't know. than 249. It's well, yeah, well, 240. This one's going to be 249. So, uh, I got that right, at least. <laughs> and well, for our guests, like, this is the biggest episode. So this is the one right, that right. matters. Right. This is the biggest one that matters. But the, the 250 mark, I think, will be pretty significant. But what's exactly five years of podcasts? That would be 260, right? Maybe, man. You got me doing a little too much podcast. 52 now. weeks a year times five, right? That's 260. I think I did my math right. That is correct. Nice. Uh, double checking because Josh is the the math major around here. So our guest today is awesome. <laughs> what they're doing is super cool. And here's here's another reason why. Because since we recorded this, I've listened and uh, not only listened, but just the topic of NFTs is kind of blowing up. Mm-hmm. And I don't mm-hmm. understand blockchain technology to a deep enough level to talk about this in a sophisticated way. But uh, they talked about how the technology is so powerful for things. And one of the aspects of it that the, the uh, kind of thought leader talking on and brought up was uh, doing titles and and bringing real estate transactions to mm-hmm. the technology to that field and how that could totally disrupt the area. And he, does, he hasn't seen anybody doing it yet. And I immediately thought, wow, well, I think think that we've uh, found someone heading down that path. Yeah. And, they, and for those of you who haven't read the title of the episode, it's Chris Sowers off from SafeWire. And uh, he kind of branched off and, you know, he, what I really like about Chris is that he believes in the idea, right? And he was a part of the team at SafeChain, but that ended up not working out. So he just, you know, he didn't let the idea just drop. He went out, got funding, found a way to make it happen. So that was that was pretty cool. But uh, you know, before we get in the episode, Josh, can you tell me what NFT stands for? Non-fungible token. Oh, he knows. I thought I was going to catch him on that one. But uh, I know because I hear there's like gifs of kitty cats that are blown up for millions of dollars. Yeah, I tried. Yeah. I, I looked into one. I'm like, I'm going to buy this cat. And I'm gonna I mean, make- it's basically like, so the way I understand it is that an NFT is like a digital title for ownership of something on the internet. Like, hey, I own this music album or I own and I have this little token and that says that I bought it. And you can't really disprove that, right? Like it's got to be, it's like the blockchain thing. You know, and I believe with like the Ethereum technology, you can actually set smart contracts on top of it to determine how you monetize that unique item and then how people can use it and distribute it. Uh, I'm probably butchering it a little bit, but it, it seems like some pretty powerful technology. This is this is the point where I realized that like 20 years from now, I'm going to be that old man going, I don't know what this is. I don't need to learn about it. But uh, that being said, we're probably rambling on at this point. So why don't we cut it off here and uh, hope you guys enjoy this interview. We'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape 
Capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7-365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am your co-host, Mike, and today... We've also got Josh here in the booth with me. Josh, what's going on? Hello, hello. Not too much, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, excited. We've got a great guest for you guys today lined up, uh, Mr. Chris Sourzoff. And Chris is the founder and CEO of SafeWire, a company designed to stop the rampant wire fraud seen today in real estate. And nearly one in every 450 real estate transactions has associated fraud reported, costing consumers and businesses over $221 million in 2019 alone. And SafeWire is a software program that allows digital authentication of buyers and sellers in real estate transactions, eliminating the chance of fraud occurring. And prior to SafeWire, Chris was a part of the team at SafeChain. And before that, he got his start in the title industry after graduating from CCAD with a degree in industrial design. We'll probably want to explore that story a little bit later. But uh, uh, Chris, we're excited to have you on the show today to talk about your story, the story of SafeWire and plans for the future. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been, uh, any trouble getting here? You know, we are having this beautiful February Columbus, Ohio weather, half a foot of snow on the ground, about nine degrees out. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, my favorite, you know. It makes that's you really I, appreciate spring. Right. I mean, that's why I chose to stay in Ohio after college. I said, man, those Februarys, that's the time <laughs> that I really love it's, Ohio. It's wrestling weather, right? That's right, it's wrestling weather. It's but, funny though. I was talking to somebody the other day about, they were talking about living in Ohio and they're in some, some beautiful fair of the country. I can't remember what it was, probably San Diego. Okay, and, and, okay. uh, and they said, they said, well, why would you ever want to live in like people live in Ohio because the terribleness of the winter makes you appreciate spring and fall so much. But the problem is those seasons for us last about four days. So we suffer 357 days of the year. Wow. If, I, I'd still mess up the math, math. then I 356, whatever the math is. 360, 361. Isn't it 365 days in a year? Yeah, and you said okay. three or four days. Well, so. then you multiply by two seasons, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> it keeps the real estate prices down though. So, you know, if you think about, there's a reason San Diego's average sale price is $700,000 mm -hmm. and ours is, you know, two twenty five. There's, a, there's an inside joke with San Diego reference that you're not filled in on, so I'll fill you in. I grew up in San Diego, and I tend to say it a lot on the podcast, and now it's become a running joke where Josh and Tim, who's not here today, typically like to bring it up at some point during each episode just to remind me that I why like would you do that? Yeah, yeah, why would you do that? I've once seen Mike meet a person, not even give him his name, just say, I'm from San Diego. And the guy said, I didn't even ask you that. That's, I asked you what your first name was. He said, but did you hear me though? I'm from San Diego. These stories are out on the internet now. Nobody, if it's on the internet, it's true. So I can't refute it. So let, let, let's go, let's go back to the, to the actual episode. So we usually start talking about like background, childhood, sure. significant milestones, you know, that kind of led you down your path. CCAD seems like the first professional career milestone. What led up to that? So coming out of high school, I was either going to go to school and play baseball or I was going to go to school and get an education, something that I thought I would enjoy doing and, and having for my future. And you were here in Columbus, born and raised? No, I'm from Eastern Pennsylvania. So my family is from a town called Nazareth. My grandparents lived in a town called Bethlehem and they were named Joseph and Mary. Can't make that up. 
It's true. That is wild. Yeah. So no, Eastern Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Philly. So Philly mm-hmm. sports fan. And it was cool. A, a neat place to grow up. You're 90 minutes away from New York City. You're, you're an hour away from Philly. You're near the beach. But for some reason, I came out to Columbus, Ohio. I didn't know anyone out here. I came out to visit CCAD and I just knew I was supposed to be out here. It's a wild feeling to have at 17, but I did. And I've been out here since 97. It's funny because we've heard that same thing, right? Like there's that just that sense of the gut feeling, right? Like trusting your gut at certain times. I I had the same feeling when I first came to visit Ohio State. I said, this is where I'm going to go to school, right? Mm -hmm. And trusting your gut, I think in those types of situations, generally tends to play out. Well, it's also, you don't, at, at that age, right? 17, 18, mm-hmm. you don't know that's what you're doing. Right. You know, it's like in hindsight, you're it's like, like, oh yeah. Obviously but this is the choice. At the, at the time, it's not, you, we don't understand. We have this intuitiveness that is that strong that says, no, like this is where you're supposed to be. I had no idea at the time. Mm-hmm. So what was the experience like at CCAD? CCD was great. It's a very challenging curriculum, a very well-known program. The first day you're there, they put everyone in the in the auditorium and they say, look around because only one of the four people around you is going to be left in four years. So three out of four from that freshman year coming in, don't make it through. And I look back to my freshman roommates. I had three other roommates, so there were four of us. And I was the only one that actually did graduate from there in four years. So It's a very challenging curriculum. They really taught me how to think. So how to think through problem solving in any type of situation. And now, you know, being in the real estate and title space, it's much easier for me to learn how to read things like spreadsheets than it is for someone else to think creatively who doesn't have that skill set. So I can think creatively and problem solve. At the same time, I can be taught to do a lot of other things as well. Mm -hmm. So you finish up your time at CCAD and then where do you take your life and career at that point? I graduated on a Saturday and by Monday I had two jobs here in Columbus. I actually thought I would end up back east, either in New York or Philly or DC. But I began to realize that I just like Columbus. And especially for young people, there's a lot of opportunity here. It's an, it's a easier place to live than on the East Coast. We have a little bit of traffic, but we don't have anything like Chicago or DC or New York or Philly. So it's a low cost of living. There's a lot of opportunity. So I actually had the opportunity to teach three-dimensional computer modeling classes at CCAD. That was something I was doing a lot of at the time. And uh, I got a job at a design firm downtown by the arena. And so I was, I, I began doing that and I was doing design work for about four or five years out of school, design work and teaching in some freelance and had an opportunity to get into real estate. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So you step into real estate and how much do you know about the title industry at that point? Are you just, is it like your first foray into it or did you have more knowledge before that? So no one actually ends up in title on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like no one actually goes to college and says, I'm going to go in title. It's never the way it works. I had two friends who wanted to start a mortgage company and we had started buying investment properties at the time. This is probably 2004. They wanted to start a mortgage company. I knew nothing about real estate. I never bought a home. I've never taken out a loan, nothing. But they were good at selling mortgages, but they couldn't do things like set up servers in an office or get phone systems to work or any of the operational stuff. And so the three of us started a company together. And after about a year and a half, we had 35 employees and we did really well, but I just, I hated it. 
I didn't like it. I didn't like the business. I didn't like that side of the business. This was a time and place for, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term subprime mortgages. Mm -hmm. This is part of the fall of the financial crisis. It was just a really interesting time to be in that space. So I got out after a year and a half. I got out before everything came crashing down. But in the meantime, I made relationships in the title space with real estate folks and started investing on my own. And then the financial crisis happened and I got annihilated financially. And so as I was rebuilding out of that, I just over leveraged and investing in some projects and rehabs and that sort of thing. And I just, like a lot of folks at the time, and I was doing commercial real estate too, which that quickly dried up the monies for that once Lehman Brothers went out of business. So there was a lot going on. It was a really wild time. It was a really scary time, but it also led to a lot of opportunity. And so I actually got into title because I was trying to survive. Mm -hmm. So I got a notary license and I had the opportunity to go and close loans for the title company where I'm an owner now, world-class title. I would drive around the state. I would sit across some people at their home, like we're sitting in a room here, and I would talk to them about the loan they're getting and the documents they're signing. And, and I would hear their fears and I would hear the conversations they're having. And I really began to just learn the product, learn what the consumer experience is like. And from that, I was able to start selling and doing title sales. And then from title sales, I was able to build a team. And then from that, eventually became an owner in the business and we've been growing ever since. So that's really kind of the story there and where it fits into what we're doing with technology and startups and the different types of things we do with marketing is I realized that if a title business, this is part of where the creative piece comes in because this isn't something I would have come to if I didn't have this background from CCAD is looking at these problems differently. I began to realize that as a title company, if we survived through 2008, 2009, and our competitors did, then their service is probably pretty good. Like they're doing something right. They're still around. They're still in business. So what can we do? What value can we bring to our clients that isn't financial value? It's value as a partner in helping them grow their business and do more things to grow together. And that's put me on the path with technology and startups and that sort of thing. So you jump into real estate. What motivated you, if, I, if we can take a step back in the mortgage company, what motivated you to want to be a part of the creation story of a business and totally pivot your career at that point from design into real estate, a whole new industry? You know, I always knew I was going to own a business. I just didn't know what that was going to be. And I don't know that you can inject that belief or inject that desire into someone or not, but I always had it ever since I was a kid and I would shovel, you know, driveways and to make money when it's snowing out or cutting grass or whatever. I just always had that desire. And I knew at a young age that I was going to be working a lot in my life. And so if I'm going to work and I'm going to build something, then why would I build it for someone else? And so even if it meant that I didn't know what I was going to be doing, but if I was going to do something, I was going to do it for me. And so it took me just three or four years out of college to realize here's an opportunity where I could build something. And, you know, just to have the ability to build something has value. Now, you know, there's a lot of lessons in, in all of it, but that was something I just knew was important to me. So you start going down this title route and you're learning about the industry and the product. You kind of have this epiphany that in order to differentiate yourself, you're going to have to start adding some extra dimensions to the value chain and your relationships with your customers. How do you go about doing that? Where do you realize that 
you could add the most value? Do you create a technology product at that point? Yeah, I did. This was probably about 2013. And I just had this idea one day that, you know, Facebook ads weren't really quite a thing yet, but Facebook was a thing. And so, you know, agents were trying to develop their business and their marketing strategies and that sort of thing. So we started doing a lot of different types of social media marketing and things like that. But I had this idea that if we could create something that would help when, if you were going to sell your home, and you have a real estate agent, oftentimes what happens is that real estate agent will go on their Facebook channels, will go on their page, will go on their things, and they'll start disseminating that information out. And most of the time, people ignore it or they don't pay attention to it. Now it's a little different because there's no inventory, so everybody's hot on anything that's listed for sale. But I thought that it'd be really interesting if it wasn't coming from their real estate agent, but it was coming from the seller themselves. And so if one of you was selling your home and we were friends on Facebook and you shared a post that had something organic in nature to you, where you said something like, we've had such wonderful memories here. Thank you all for being a part of it. If you know anyone who'd like to take a look at our house, you know, here it is or whatever. And what happens is that creates a lot more engagement because I have a personal relationship with that person and I'm also nosy. And so I would go and we would then deliver that traffic to their real estate agent. And th that was called social MLS. And so I worked with the developer to build that. And then I took that to Rev1. I went through their concept academy, met a bunch of folks over there when they were doing the Tech Columbus to Rev1 Ventures change and got some investment over there. And what happened was two things. One, I realized that the idea was too small. The idea was good, but it was just too small. And second, the market changed. So what originally took four weeks to sell a home now suddenly took four hours to sell a home. So you didn't really need a marketing tool like that anymore. And so as I was putting that to sleep, that's when the opportunity presented itself for what became SafeChain. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. At this point, what became SafeChain was developed on a blockchain. Like, I, it seems like to me that you just, you seem like a curious person who really goes, like you learn a whole bunch of different things throughout this process, right? Like you went from industrial design to real estate. And then when SafeChain comes around, now we're talking blockchain technology. Like, how do you learn about all these different things throughout your day? Are you constantly reading? Are you constantly like looking at things? Or is it just, hey, oh, that seems interesting. Let's learn a little more about that. I mean, yeah, I would say I'm an avid learner. I wouldn't say I'm an avid reader, but I have an avid curiosity around things that spark my interest and things that I genuinely have a deep interest in. And then I have been able to figure out how to connect the dots and understand how that could be something that I could either use or something that I could invest in. If it's a technology, it's, it's a stock, it's a person, it's a whatever. With blockchain that, you know, I, I had no idea what blockchain was in 2016. No idea what really what Bitcoin was, no idea what any of it uh, was. All I was really looking for was a way to create better, smarter, safer real estate transactions. And so through that process and through Rev1, actually, I met our two co-founders. So there were three of us that co-founded SafeChain and we all met through, actually through Rev1. And then, you know, we each brought some different expertise to the table and were able to coalesce around the idea of how could we how could we look at using this technology in a space like title, uh, in title insurance, and do it in a way that had opportunity? You know, 
as you would imagine, both things have massive levels of nuance and complication to them. So when you take something that is new and challenging as something like blockchain, blockchain is amazing, it's an amazing technology, but now you're trying to pair it in a way with a legacy type of industry like title insurance, which has been around since the 1800s, and you're trying to figure out ways to marriage the two together, it becomes very, very difficult. So can you talk about that in more detail then? You guys see this really difficult challenge and you're trying to tackle it. How do you even go about doing that? And then how do you apply those two worlds? So there was a series of steps involved with how we were thinking about that solution. And at the same time, like a kind of like an oh, by the way moment, there's this new problem coming into real estate with real estate wire fraud. And so in 2016, this real estate wire fraud is presenting itself. And to me, this problem that's coming is, is terrifying because now what's happening is that proceeds from closings are getting wired to the wrong accounts and end up in accounts overseas and that money can be gone in a matter of minutes, hours, days. And so all of these things are kind of happening at the same time. And so what I recognized is if you look at what you need to do to build blockchain projects, there's a couple different things you need to do. One of the things you need to do is you need to have something called an authentication layer. And an authentication layer simply means that if Josh and I were going to exchange a digital asset, so like cryptocurrency is the best example of a digital asset, right? Bitcoin. But a digital asset could be anything. Like we, you could digitize the transfer of your home. So right now that process to transfer ownership of a home is an analog process. We envisioned an idea where that could become a digital process, just like it, just like money has become Bitcoin is digital currency. It's not like we're you know sending each other a dollar, we're sending each other a digital piece of currency. But if you're going to do that and you're going to exchange any type of digital product, it's really important that I am who I say I am and you are who you say you are and you have that digital asset that you can exchange and vice versa and that I can receive. And so with the authentication layer, my thought at the time was let's build an authentication layer that we can also use to prevent real estate wire fraud. So that would be our entryway into this space where we could create this product called SafeWire and we would use this as somewhat of a beachhead segment into the real estate transaction. And so that was really how the two came about, mm -hmm. how SafeWire came as an authentication layer for what we were looking to build out with a blockchain solution. And so today, SafeChain has been dissolved. Mm -hmm. There was things that happened there. We don't have to get too much mm -hmm. into it. But what did you learn from your time at SafeChain that when you broke off and decided, I'm going to keep pursuing SafeWire, what was it that made you want to keep doing that? And what did you learn from Well, I'll tell you, I think I think one of the challenges that SafeChain had, and th this isn't a unique thing to SafeChain. This happens in, in, you know, I know that you all have a, an audience with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of folks who are thinking about starting things. And what happened there isn't isn't something that is unique to SafeChain. And there were, you know, like anything, whenever something doesn't work, there's a lot of reasons why what goes into that. But one of the reasons, in my opinion, was we split focus too soon from a wire fraud solution project product and began building out blockchain projects for county pilots and county programs and state programs. And the problem was we just split focus too soon. And when you do that, it's really difficult to get and continue to have enough results and traction to keep moving at the pace everything was moving. And so, you know, it's really important to do one thing really well before you start adding on those additional things and really be focused. So, and then how do you go about forming SafeWire, what is today's mm -hmm. SafeWire, and what's different? About yeah, so I couldn't get away from the problem. So I was with SafeChain for about a year, year and a half, and then I went back to my title business in Westerville. So 
for about 2000, I think 2018, 2019, I wasn't involved in the day-to-day safe chain as much, but I was obviously a big promoter of what everybody was doing and trying to be working and building the title business. And I couldn't get away from this problem. And what happened in 2016, so just to give a little bit of insight as to what's happening and why this fraud is a problem is there are folks who are based out of, uh, primarily based out of Western Africa, who are working with black hat hacker groups out of India and Pakistan who are running phishing scams on real estate professionals. And they're the same folks that for the last 20, 30 years have been doing the email uh, scams where they're pretending they're, you know, they have millions of dollars of your long lost uncle's money in a, in a, in a bank account in Nigeria. And if you give them $4,000, they're going to give you $4 million, whatever. Which is a phenomenal trade, honestly, if you could actually get them. Um, yeah. And I probably, I mean, I'm happy to forward along some contact information if you want to. If you want to give it a shot. Give it a shot. Yeah. Maybe just a couple of them, you know, I'm always, it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. Side, side conversation. But have you guys seen that video of James something? To the TED talk? Yeah. There's a TED talk. The TED talk. Is, have it's you seen that? hilarious. Oh, so the guy, see. he basically, he says, well, you know, all these spam emails everybody gets. Well, I decided what would happen if I answered every single mm-hmm. one of those? And it's basically just him just messing with the spammers over email threads and he's going through the threads and it is hilarious. You got to, you got to check it out. But, but we, but terribly rudely butchered yep, the most important part. You were talking about the, the actual problem, the value prop. So please continue. Yeah, on no, that. no, it's, it's, it's wild. It's wild to think that people actually fall for these things, but they do. It's a big problem. It has been for the last 20 25 years. And what I couldn't get my head around was how this all happened so quickly. And when you think about it, it makes sense why it happened so quickly because the folks that were doing this are experts at moving money across the world in illegitimate ways. And so someone realized that they could pretend they were title companies or pretend they were real estate agents or pretend they were consumers and they could work their way into these transactions and get proceeds from real estate sales sent to fictitious accounts. And they began doing that. And it scared the hell out of me because, you know, one of our people could be having a bad day and all of a sudden they wire, you know, $250,000 to the wrong account and, you know, it's a mess. And that was happening more and more. So that was happening in 2016. Since then, title companies have gotten much better at protecting their transactions and they're part of the transaction. So Safewire originally built a product that we could sell to title companies and we could authenticate that buyers and sellers are who they say they are. They are where they say they are. They have access to the accounts where they want their funds to go to and that sort of thing. But what's since happened is the problem has changed. Just like any good fraud, they've evolved just like the technology has evolved. It's a constant game of cat and mouse, right? So these guys now, once someone lists a home for sale and your information is on a portal like Zillow or Realtor.com, They now have your property address. They have your real estate agent. They have your information. They have everything they would need to do to wreak havoc on a real estate transaction. And so these guys now begin at the listing and they are trying to siphon funds from any place they can get in the transaction. So the reason they're able to do that is because the real estate industry has a ton of segmented data. So we have all this siloed data and how we exchange our data often is through unsecured email. So you have mortgage companies that have their data, title companies have their data, real estate agents and brokers have their data and how we exchange data is how they're getting us. So they're now, what they're doing is they're phishing real estate agents who are independent contractors. So if I'm a large brokerage 
and I have a uh, 100,000 real estate agents in my brokerage, they're all independent contractors. So I can't really force them to have sophisticated email configurations. You know, Jim Smith has Jim123AOL.com for the last 20 years, the same password. Those brokers really can't resolve that and fix that. It's a problem. And so he gets fished. Now what these fraudsters do is they get into his email and they just watch. They're watching to see what's happening and they're figuring out who his clients are. They're figuring out who the title companies are in the transaction. And they go in and they set up a forwarding rule from one of your client's emails. So any email that comes from your client will get moved out of your inbox, moved into a folder that the agent's never going to look at will be marked as red. Same thing from a title company. They'll they'll mark anything from a title company's domain and they'll move it into a, a, a RSS feeds folder. They'll mark it as red. And the real estate agent has no idea this is happening. And so they're just watching and watching. And then what they do is when the real information comes through, they get it. They take out the the actual wire instructions or the actual information. They manipulate it and they, they replace it and they put it back in. And next thing you know, that buyer where that title company has just sent $5,000, $50,000, $750,000 to the wrong place. And if they, the FBI has about a four-day window to get that money back, after about four days, that money gets into a bank account in China or in South Africa or in Hong Kong, and it's gone. JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years, providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. So when you were analyzing this and looking at all of the different broken aspects of this entire process, was blockchain the first thing that popped in your head? Because the very little amount I know about blockchain it's essentially, you know, like a, an authentication system that allows you to verify without an intermediary that both sides do indeed have what they say they have. Does that solve all of the different data transportation issues in this process? Well, it, it has the potential to, but the potential to and the actuality of the two are, there's a, a large divide, right? And so my belief is we have to take a bit more of a pragmatic approach to what's happening right now. And what SafeWire has to do is be able to authenticate folks at day one of the transaction, not at day 91 of the transaction. So we have to get to consumers before fraudsters can. And if and when blockchain is a part of that, it's like we we led with everything we did with blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. The problem is that people don't know what that means. And they don't quite understand how it actually works in in with an existing ecosystem of legacy technology that's that's not going anywhere. So we really have to become a middleware 
and play with all types of different APIs and software products. And 99.9% of them don't have any type of blockchain technology built into them at all. And so you have no block, you have no rails, you have nothing to set it on. But I think that there is an opportunity to, with that all being said, to do that sort of thing, to have that kind of technology in these platforms. Blockchain is like a transmission in a car, right? You're not going to buy a car because of the transmission. Now, it's cool that you have a great transmission and it works and you don't really have to think about it. And so as I see the technology moving forward, it's about putting it into the technology and into the build in a way that keeps things safer, more efficient, removes a lot of the uh, un, un, uh, superfluous, unneeded stuff, but uh, it should just work. It should just work like your transmission in your car works. And we're just not there yet. And so the question, even the question with SafeChain was always, are we going to be there? Is this a three-year problem? Is this a 30-year problem? And I don't know. I don't know. I think if I had to put money on it, I would probably edge more towards a 30-year problem than a three-year problem. But with all that being said, the second reason I'm I'm very passionate about this problem is because technologists always think that they can remove real estate agents and real estate transactions, and they can't. And real estate agents always underappreciate what actually technologists bring into the transaction, how they make can make their lives easier and what technology can do to make them more efficient. So it's a pairing of the two, just like anything. Over 90% of consumers want trusted real estate professionals in their transactions. Like that's just a fact. They just don't want everything else, right? And so what's happening and what my fear is, consumers want real estate professionals in their transactions unless we can't keep them safe. So if as an industry, we can't keep consumers funds safe in a real estate transaction, collectively, we all have a significant problem. Like Chris doesn't just have a problem. World-class title doesn't just have a problem. The entire industry has a problem. If we lose consumer confidence in what it is we do as a profession, then what it's going to do is it's going to leave the door wide open for a player coming into the space. A company like Opendoor is a great example who has built end-to-end technology from the listing all the way through the title and closing and funding in one continuous, in one continuous build. And so they own all of that technology from day one to day 91. And if we can't do that and compete with that, we're going to be left incredibly vulnerable as an industry. Yeah. So not, not being familiar with Open Door, I'm just curious. It sounds like you've explained that they've solved the different challenges throughout this entire process that you've described. Why, if, if they've solved it, what is the push to implement you know, like where, where does Safefire come into that play? Well, so Opendoor is one company. So they're one company. They're their own company. They're not building a technology platform that anyone's going to use or license other than them. So they have a brokerage. They have a mortgage company. They have a title company. They have something called iBuying where they'll actually go and make a cash offer for your house practically sight unseen. So they, they're doing all of that. And they have a search function that you could use their app and start searching for homes, you know, today. They're in something like, I don't know, 50 markets right now. But they're a very, very small part of the industry. So right now their market share may be, you know, 1%. I think for me, my point is that when I think about the existing players in this space, when I think about the Remaxes and I think about the Realogies, which is like Cola Banker and Sotheby's and, and Kel Williams and all those guys, when you think about the large players in this space who have dominant market share, those are the guys who are going to be vulnerable to these new technology players coming into the scene if and when consumers potentially lose 
trust in what we do with their money. And, and that's, again, that's kind of driving my push to do this because if I have a vested interest in consumers trusting what we do as real estate professionals, so it's important to me that we are able to lock up and keep safe what it is we do or we're going to be in trouble. So you mentioned during that that you think they want people involved in that real estate process. Do you feel like that would be the same way if the real estate process wasn't as complex, had more transparency and had safer technology like blockchain that it was sitting on Consumers top of? Consumers are still going to want a trusted professional. They just don't want everything else. So what, what's going to happen and what I think is, is happening is as the transparency, efficiency, all these things come into the space, you're still going to have the people, because keep in mind, this is the largest financial decision most people are going to make in their lives. And especially in a market like it is right now, you absolutely want a trusted real estate professional because you're not going to find a house if you don't have one, right? You're not going to be able to move. You may get 20 offers to sell your home, but which one are you going to take? Which one's actually going to close? Which one is actually going to get you the best return on your investment, right? And so what's going to happen is as transactions get more and more efficient as more and more transparent. I, it's going to push down commissions. It's going to push down fees, things like that. But the agents who adopt and adapt are going to do more transactions and, and there's going to be less meat on the bone for those agents who don't. So for a long time, the industry has suffered a bit from having too many part-time real estate professionals that have been able to do, you know, five, 10 deals a year to supplement their income for their families, but it hasn't brought a ton of value to the consumer. That stuff is going to go away because there's going to be less and less opportunities. There's going to be less meat on the bone as real estate professionals get more and more efficient and they're able to do more. So what does the team look like at, at SafeWire today? And how has that changed since you first broke off and created SafeWire as a separate company? So one of the biggest challenges, the initial challenge was how do we take the technology from the existing team and how do we take everything from the existing team that was winding now a safe chain and move it to a team to ramp up with SafeWire? And so a little more context, last February is when myself and Pete Kite acquired the assets from SafeChain and moved them into this new venture with SafeWire. And one of the first things we did, the first challenge we had was figuring out what is is that what does that look like? How do we make that transition? We were able to do that over the course of about three months where that team that was winding down helped us get a new team ramped up and in place by summer. So we have about 20 right now between full part-time and some consultancy type folks. Most of our core people are here in central Ohio. So Phil Moorhead, who was with Beam Dental for a while, he was running a product team there where they're, you know, Beam uses smart toothbrush technology to deploy dental insurance products. And Toby Miller, who's another local dev, he's been a developer here in Central Ohio for the last 25 years. I met him through Kevin Mack. I don't know. Kevin's a pretty well-known guy around town. And Nicole Evans, who's a sales lead for us, was with me with World Class and has been selling SafeWire as part of what she does through her title sales with World Class for the last three, four years. So put a core team together and then we've been supporting them. That was a significant lift, as you can imagine, taking all of that was there with safe chain and figuring out what we were going to keep, what we were not going to keep, what we had to turn off, how we keep things moving, working, supporting existing customers through the transition. Well, not just to work at the end of the transaction, but to work it all the way through the transaction from day one through day 91. The other large change we made was we now use the product to deploy a warranty product that the consumer can pay for at closing. And so that's really how we're making our money moving forward is in the past, SafeWire had been 
really like a transactional type of service that a title company would pay for per use. We've completely changed that. And now we use the technology to deploy a warranty and eventual insurance products in and around the real estate space. And that's how we're going to structure moving forward is using the technology to keep transactions safer and use it for warranty and insurance products to sell to consumers. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, Hybeck. It's actually just me and Tim in the booth because, well, Josh is on his way over to the restaurant right now. So unluckily for us, we don't get any special treatment. I don't think he's bringing us back a pizza or anything. I don't think so. I'm a little jealous. We love Hybeck. I mean, I go there all the time. Their hot honey pizza they got going right now. Yep. That's what I was going to say. As soon as we had him on the episode, I called in before they even left and ordered it and picked it up on the way out. And it was the best. We're talking about the restaurant, but Hybeck's a lot more than just a restaurant. They distill whiskey and gin and vodka. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, they brought in a couple of different options for us to try recently. And I really like this Midnight Cask. It's a mixture, I think, of whiskey along with a port wine. And it kind of tastes like a Manhattan, but it's like double the strength. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, listen to the episode. I mean, the story behind the organization is great too, so. Yeah, it's a bunch of local entrepreneurs that just have a passion for making good food and great drinks. They just launched a thing called the Whiskey Society too, which I joined. Mm -hmm. And if you really like booze, it's worth checking out. It pays for itself just in the entry fee. And then you'll get cards for drinks every month. They put on events. Right now they're on Zoom, but teach you how to make drinks, tell you what to use, why you use those things. It's definitely for the whiskey enthusiast. I've enjoyed my membership so far, that's for sure. So if you guys like High Bank, if you're looking for a restaurant, somewhere to watch the game. If you're looking to put in an order for a pickup, check out High Bank, man. Their food's great. They're great people. Yeah. And we love their drinks. And get the hot honey pizza. Get the hot honey pizza. I promise you will love it. All right. Now back to the show. What do the goals look like over the next 12, 24 months, 48 months, however far out long you guys are planning right now? So we've just signed agreements with some large title groups that we're implementing and onboarding right now. So we're building some custom integrations with those folks. You know, it's similar to what Pete did with CheckFree was this product has to kind of fit in the cracks of what existing folks in this space already do. So we're not building a product where they have to change behavior. We have to fit into the cracks of what it is they already do and do it as much as we can under their brands, under umbrella, underneath them in a way where we're just supporting what they do and keeping them safe. So we're doing a lot of that right now. We're building a bunch of integrations and forming integration partners. We really have to be in that middleware space and fit in the cracks, just kind of workspace. So we're doing a lot of that right now. We have some different revenue goals and metrics. I don't know that we're going to be out this year fundraising at all. I don't I don't anticipate we will. It could change, but right now we're in a good place where we are able to be heads down on the product and our clients and really building a great experience that keeps things safer moving forward. And what about personal goals, Chris? Anything anything you're thinking about outside of uh, Safe You know, I've built a pretty amazing life where I have my personal, my professional are woven together in such a way where it all just kind of works. And so one of the things I learned going through the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 was that I really didn't want to have to have a job again. You know, I wanted to have something that I did that I was passionate about. And when I started the mortgage company, I was like straight up, I was chasing the money. Like I did that in 2006 because I wanted the cash. I was, I was 23, 24, whatever, 25, and I was going for the money and it made me miserable. And I learned through that process that it was necessary. Like I had to get and achieve those goals that I had. I just thought, you know, if I make $100,000 a year, I'm not going to have any more problems. Right. Hmm. And that was the, one of the first large lies I told to myself. And when I realized that that just is not true, it's very empty. 
it's very empty to hit some of those goals and then realize that like, oh, this isn't, this isn't cool. So going through those experiences, it made me come out the other side and realize that I just really wasn't going to do anything anymore that I wasn't passionate about doing. And, and that has made all the difference. And so because of that, I'm able to have a life where I can mend the two together professionally and personally, where I can still be a great dad. I can still have great friends. I can still do a lot of things I enjoy doing. And because I love what I do, I don't have to turn it off. No, it's not that I'm up at five and working till two. Like I don't do any, I don't do that. Like, but I'm constantly thinking about solving problems. I'm constantly thinking about how I push things forward. And I'm constantly thinking about how do I support my people so they're able to execute in a way that they're set up for success. And so those are the things and that I'm typically spending a lot of my time on is how am I setting not just myself up, but how am I setting everyone up around me for success? And maybe a good place to pivot into asking, you know, do you have any advice for our listeners out there, uh, entrepreneurs and, and Based on what you said, I might have a guess of what it would be, but uh, curious to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, that's one. I mean, don't chase the cash. It's just very, you know, it's a very empty thing to actually hit that goal, right? Like you hit that goal and it's like, wait, my life didn't get better. And I just have more, you know, more money, more problems, right? It's a very true thing. Now, sometimes you need to do that. Like, I, I don't also think that there are a lot of mistakes. Sometimes you have to fail and you have to get to a place of misery in order to realize that we do things that we don't want sometimes to figure out what it is we do want. And so all of that is necessary. And if you're going to make mistakes, make them early and often, especially if you're young. I mean, there's no better time to, to make a mistake. But, you know, I, I don't know. I think a lot about entrepreneurship sometimes. And I don't really think I had a choice, but to be an entrepreneur. Like I don't, I never, like when I was doing it in the 2000, 2004, like entrepreneurship wasn't a thing. It was like you, somebody would call somebody an entrepreneur when they didn't know what they wanted to be when they grew up. Right. Like there was, it wasn't really a cool thing to be or to do. I do it because I don't really have a choice. I'm not hireable anymore. You know, like I can't work for anybody else at this point, but it's, it's certainly not easy. And if mm -hmm. you want something easy, like don't do a startup. Like, yeah. I mean, right. You guys know you're working in a somewhat of a software startup type space. Like it's hard and mm -hmm. it's, they're not easy gigs and they often aren't the best paying gigs and opportunities out there. And you're generally going to work your butt off. And so, you know, there's a lot of great lifestyle businesses out there that are justice is fulfilling and, and satisfying and you get to call your own shots and you get to have a, an amazing life. So, you know, it, it's figuring out what's important to you and, you know, happiness has a lot of value. Quality of life has a lot of value and, and surrounding yourself with good people is incredibly important. I think that's a great answer, Chris. And I think also a good place to pivot towards our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase for a show about entrepreneurs and business leaders, what do you think of when you hear it? How's it apply to your life? You guys and sent me that question a few days ago and I was thinking about it and actually was thinking about it in the context of you can't be uncomfortable forever, right? Like uh, the idea of, of living uncomfortably, mm -hmm. you know, is constantly be growing, constantly be out of that comfort zone. So you're learning new things or, but like, I think of it in the terms of like, we started this show off with the weather like the seasons, right? There's a season for everything. And sometimes it is important to be uncomfortable. Like right now you walk outside, it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable, but that uncomfortability is important because it allows us to maybe take a step back and breathe a little bit and get ready for what's coming next. What seeds are we planting? You know, for me, like this is a busy time traditionally for our title business because we would be planting all these seeds for spring, getting ready for spring market. And so we'd be doing all kinds of 
outbounds and that sort of thing. So the idea of constant uncomfortability, for me, I have to be careful because it also goes into that mindset of the nonstop hustle culture, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually just breaks. People make it look cool, but it's incredibly difficult to sustain over a long period of time. And it leads to a lot of things like burnout and frustration and undesirabilities. So, you know, I think it's a great concept to constantly be growing, constantly learning, but it's okay to also take a step back and breathe and recognize like what's working and what isn't working and how do I adjust and, and move forward in the right, right way. Balance is definitely important, Chris. And I think that's a great answer. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, and Congress, if you guys enjoyed that episode and you want to hear more interviews just like it, make sure to hit that subscribe button down below. We appreciate you tuning in every week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.